Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Sorry, a little bit of technical difficulty there. So we're here as usual to answer questions about meditation practice, Buddhist practice, emphasis on practice. So we're here to answer practical questions that impact you and your life and your progress towards finding peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. So if you have any questions, again, we're looking for questions that are of impact in your practice and your life. Post them in the chat. That's what we're here for today. We're going to do 15 minutes of silent meditation. It's an opportunity for our kind and generous volunteers to gather and sort the questions and also a chance for all of us to settle into the moment, take yourself out of the conventional world of people and places and things, bring yourself back to the experience here and now. So not this computer or the screen, just the seeing and the hearing of the sound of the voice, the feeling of the chair, the heat and the cold and the sounds around you sights and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts, all of your emotions, just becoming aware of reality. Take 15 minutes for that. And during that time when you have your questions, just post them in the chat. And 15 minutes after the hour, I will go for 20 minutes after the hour, we can start because we started late. So 20 minutes after the hour, we'll be back to begin answering the questions.
All right, it's 20 minutes after the hour. Well, from here on, we'd ask that the chat be closed to everything except questions. So continue to post questions in the chat if you have them. But everything else will probably just be deleted. And we'll begin now to answer questions. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Every time I say the mantra in my head, I also say it somehow with my breath, so I can't recognize the object, and my focus goes automatically on the breath. Do you have any advice? Well, it's kind of a narrative to say it happens every time, because you create in your mind this is a problem, and you propose it to me, and you may not be doing that, but be careful about that if you are doing that. You have to always take things on a moment-to-moment basis. Don't have any expectation that it's always going to be like this. That just is self-defeating. So you take it as it comes, and that's the nature of the practice. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be surprising. It's going to be unexpected. That's the nature of reality. That's an important thing that we're we're trying to see. You didn't expect this, probably. You expected that somehow it was going to work, and you were going to be able to do it the way you wanted, but, well, it's not going according to plan, so... It's not under your control. You just take it as it comes and you note what happens. So when that happens, and a common thing to say would be saying knowing, knowing when you know something happens. If you feel your breath when you're noting something else, you you I mean I guess if you're if you say the mantra with the breath, well I guess I'm not sure that that's are you noting the breath? Is it noting the rising and the falling? Because in that case that's fine. That's what's supposed to happen. You're not really supposed to say it in your head per se, you're supposed to say it with the breath. But if you're noting something else in it, and instead you notice the breath, well, you should just note the breath, like feeling, if you feel it at the nose, or you feel the the breath in the chest, or that kind of thing. But uh, this kind of thing where it goes automatically somewhere, wouldn't be every time. And don't think of it as every time, because it can always change. Just try, and when it is like that, just note it like that. And even if it keeps happening, just keep noting it. Sometimes it will conflict with the instructions you've been given. Well, just note that. Note it anyway, and then when it does change, then go back and try and do the instructions as taught. There's no, there's nothing special so much about the instructions that you're given, like noting the stomach rising and falling. It's just it's something to always come back to, and it's something that helps you notice when you get distracted by something else, when something else takes your attention, because you have something to do, and it's not happening, so you know something's distracting you. It, it helps you stay, it helps you catch the distractions, catch the, the focus of your mind wherever it goes. A result of the practice is disinclination from foolish people. How do I explain to family and friends that I can no longer see them? I'm no longer cultivating this attachment, but I'm still bothered by them. Well, being bothered is an attachment. So dis- disinclination is maybe being too kind. If, you're, if you actually are bothered, then you're not. it's not a disinclination, it's an aversion. And aversion isn't a result of the practice. Aversion is just a bad habit that, you, that we have, and you then apply it to the practice or to, to these aspects of the practice this thing I like about the practice and this thing I don't like uh, that is not the practice, for example, associating with foolish people. So that aversion is not 
anything good. It's not a good sign. <laughs> Just uh, well, it can be. It can be a byproduct. Um, you you start to see something as being um, not the source of happiness that you thought it was, or maybe a source of suffering. But then, because of your bad habits of getting upset about suffering, you, you in turn get upset. So it's kind of a byproduct in a way of the practice, but just taking the wrong the wrong uh making the wrong conclusion or taking the wrong thing from practice the wrong idea something not being not being worth attaching to is different from something that you should try to get rid of of course it's a learning experience when you try to avoid people then you start to see how much that causes suffering and you realize that that's an attachment as well and you let go of that so just try and be mindful of the aversion being bothered but this the, the question you have is not a good question how do i explain to my family that i can no longer see them is really not buddhist you know, there would be no buddhist explanation oh i can no longer see you because you bother me so it's, that's not buddhism buddhism is when you see something you note it as seeing when you hear something, you note it as hearing. Not how do I, how do I uh, explain not being able to see things? Seeing things isn't the problem. Seeing people is not the problem. Problem is you being bothered by it. You you still may have to explain uh, why you are non-reactive, why you are not engaging the way you used to. But that has nothing to do with not seeing, especially family. Family is something. It's uh, a great blessing to be on good relations with your family, with your relatives. They will support you through thick and thin, and you will support them. It's a great. It can be a great uh, source of support and and mutual uh, benefit if you if you cultivate the harmony that's required for that. And uh, they can be people who accept and appreciate the practice if you're patient. And if not, then you'll go your separate ways, but that'll happen naturally. It usually happens when they feel dissatisfied and upset. People feel upset because you're no longer fun to be around. That's, again, just hearing, hearing, <laughs> thinking, feeling, note the, note the experiences. But, but absolutely don't try to avoid anything. Avoid people, especially family. Unless they're like drunk or killing or stealing, and then you can just say, that's my explanation is I don't engage in alcoholics. Sometimes I would have to go to family. Before I was a monk, I would have to go to family gatherings where they were drinking alcohol. and um, Rarely would I actually go, but my mother's wedding, for example, I went and I just sat and was very mindful. I ate my dinner and then left. Um, but when I became a monk, I, I just it was an excuse. And probably I would have, after that, most of the time, just disinclined to go to such things. So there's things that you can avoid, but those are specific reasons. Yeah, you're you're drinking alcohol. I'm not going to go. That kind of thing. Um, if a, if a family member engages much in hunting or or fishing or those kinds of things, you might. Tell them that I'm sorry, I just can't be that involved because these things are contrary to what I believe is wholesome and good, that sort of thing. So there are 
some cases where there's extreme unwholesomeness, breaking the five precepts is uh, something you can just make clear, but that's not nothing to do with being bothered, just uh, upholding principles. You don't want to be supportive of people killing or stealing or lying or cheating or that sort of thing, drugs and alcohol. Should I limit my practice so as not to be unable to support myself and stay alive in the world? Um, well, practically speaking, absolutely, yes. I mean, if you are not able to support yourself and stay alive in the world, you in turn won't be able to practice, right? Death wouldn't be helpful to your practice, most likely. Not unless you're reborn in heaven. Like that can be beneficial. I mean, ultimately, that it isn't such a big deal because, again, you can die and go to heaven and it can be even better. So if you're really committed to your practice, you don't really have to worry so much about your livelihood or your life. But to get there, to get to the point where you're actually mindful, probably requires you to support yourself it kind of goes on a scale, like uh, you start, you ramp up your practice and you care less about your livelihood gradually. But you can't just say, okay, I'm going to start today to begin this practice of Buddhist meditation, so I will cut off all my livelihood. Well, you're not very good at meditation. It's not going to be that beneficial to get rid of your livelihood. Do it slowly. Eventually, you get to the point where you decide to ordain and become a monk and become go and live under a tree or in the forest or a monastery or something. And uh, that's just a gradual progression where you just give up your concern for livelihood. Make it gradual is better advice, I think. Among the four Satipatthana objects, does the choice of object matter? And is one more advantageous to focus on? There are some limited benefits to noting one over another, but it's more that there's going to be one or another that's going to be more of a challenge and more fruitful for for different types of people. Like if someone is more passionate, then body and feelings are going to be more beneficial just because they're going to be more of a challenge for the meditator. If someone is more intellectual, skeptical, that sort of thing, then jitta and dhamma, the, the mind and mind objects are going to be more beneficial. Someone who's practiced samatha a lot in the past, then kaya and vedana are going to be more beneficial. Someone who's practiced a lot of vipassana or just vipassana, then jitta and dhamma will be generally more beneficial. But you really have to note all four. There's there's not going to be anyone who doesn't have to note all four. Um, your best bet is just to focus on what's clearest and go back to the body. Really, the body is the most fruitful, especially in the beginning, as a main object. Because as you focus on the body, the mind becomes clearer by itself. Trying to focus on the mind is challenge, is hard, is really unmanageable or unfruitful because of how fleeting the mind is. How it's like chasing your own tail. You focus on the body, you get to see how the mind works. That's kind of the general idea. I suffer from the addiction of food, pornography, and distraction, yet knowing this doesn't prevent me from doing it. 
The compulsion does not meet any resistance. Is meditation powerful enough? It will, it will help, um, but you have to look at it more on a gradual scale. Like the, the first thing you're going to notice is you don't want to kill or steal or lie or cheat or take drugs or alcohol. That's on a much more urgent and um, powerful level than, than addiction to food, pornography, and distraction. Those things are um, reasonable for lay people, reasonable for a beginner Buddhist in general. So try and focus more on, on the five precepts, not killing, stealing, lying, cheating, taking drugs and alcohol. If you do that, you should be able to find that you're gradually able to gain a better perspective on the world, gain some skills that help you when you're angry, help you when you're lustful. They just help you stay moderate and cultivating spirituality. Um, the only way you can really go beyond that on any reasonable um, level or, or scale like in this life is to do intensive practice. So we have a system set up, our system that we've worked out is do our at-home course and then we encourage people, well, we offer for people to come and do intensive courses. That's really where change happens. If you do intensive practice, especially on a long-term basis, if you did courses after one after another, then absolutely it's powerful enough to get rid of all of those things become trivial uh, un, un, um, they become impotent they become not weak trivial yes and you're able to to free yourself from them quite readily but only through really the really powerful um clarity that comes from intensive practice otherwise you just have to appreciate that it's going to be a slow gradual process by which you grow as an individual we're, we're all and something you have to appreciate is in general mindfulness is not about preventing it's about understanding and yes that understanding will gradually prevent you but the way you'll experience it is more of a weakening, a moderating, um, and and more importantly in the beginning, a freeing yourself from the guilt and depression and self-loathing that comes from such things, because that's the set, the added layer. There's usually this at least double layer where you engage in things that you know are wrong. But then you feel bad about that. You feel angry. You chastise and hate yourself. And that being the second level really hides or prevents you from facing the actual addiction or aversion itself. Right? You're you're because you're instead of facing it and studying it, you're reacting to it, you're judging it. So you're high, you're covering it up with your self-loathing and hatred and depression, worry and fear. All of these things are the secondary level that you have to deal with. So really, uh, that's why I say focus. As long as you're keeping the five precepts, there should be no reason ever to allow yourself to break the five precepts. But uh, as for the things that you mentioned, be more focused on trying to face them and, and see them objectively and face your loathing of them or your guilt about them and that sort of thing. 
get a better perspective where you're just acknowledging that they're deeply rooted and they're going to take time to deal with and that's always going to be the way you should look at even if you do intensive practice you have to see them objectively instead of trying to get rid of them or destroy them or free yourself from them try and learn about them study them understand them when seeing can one label it as seeing without trying to label what is being seen that's the way to do it you shouldn't try to label what is being seen because what is being seen is light there's nothing the the meaning of it like the the object is just a conception in the mind it's not real seeing is always just light right you don't ever see a cat or a dog or a tree or a person you always just see light there's nothing special about it there's no differentiating of what it is you're seeing you could note light i suppose um, but seeing is much more effective in sitting meditation when i notice that i have drifted away in thought but can't remember if this happened from the breath or after noting a sensation do i go to the breath or do i note thinking when you notice that you've drifted away in thought yes just note thinking even after the fact once you realize it just say thinking you can also note distracted if you realize you've been really lost in thought when one loses their oomph in practice and wants to get back into it what is the best way to find meditation delightful again what would be the best way to long-lasting happiness uh, you've learned something that's kind of a hard lesson meditation isn't something you can delight in the tricky thing about mindfulness is that it's not something you can cling to because that's the whole point of mindfulness is to free you from clinging to make you independent if mindfulness was something you could delight in then that would be a dependency um, so your, your your attitude has to change and it is kind of gradually changing even though you're being pulled into dragged into it unwillingly uh, is that mindfulness is more challenging than that it's not so simple so we're used to thinking that the only way to uh, let's say want to do something is if it's going to delight you and now meditation seems like it's not delighting you so you're like oh i don't want to do that anymore it's not delighting me how could i possibly want to do that the reason you want we want to meditate quote unquote want it's not really wanting the reason we're inclined to meditate or should be inclined to meditate is through wisdom through understanding and you have to so to speak cling to that the only thing you can really cling to is knowledge and wisdom and it's not really clinging you just rely on it you rely on the uh, knowledge and appreciation that the practice is the only really useful and valuable thing for you but it's not because it's delightful yeah, that that's the whole point of it is to free yourself from the need to be delighted your desire to be delighted is an, is a cause for suffering your aversion to feeling not delighted bored unsatisfied is a cause for suffering and that's what mindfulness helps you to see so seeking out long-lasting happiness 
barking up the wrong tree. That's not the way to it. Um, because what you what you speak of as long-lasting happiness is most likely not satisfying. It's most likely what you're referring to is most likely pleasure, whether it be mental or physical pleasure, and none of that is permanent. See, even the word long-lasting, long-lasting means still means it ends, and if it ends, it can't satisfy you. It's not valuable. Qualitatively or objectively, long-lasting is something that is meaningless. Because long or short, it ends, and so it doesn't matter how long it lasts. The only real happiness is independence, letting go. And it's not long-lasting, it's just default. It's, you could say, permanent. It's without any dependency, without any requirements. doesn't matter what you experience, you're happy. So I would recommend noting things like liking or wanting or those sorts of things, or disliking when you're bored or when you're averse to the practice and you think of it as a chore or a burden. Those are all just reactions, and you just have to note them. They're, they're caused by the addiction to pleasure and so on. Must we let go of all narratives, stop cultivating the thought patterns, or is there room for a conventional self-narrative? No, the only narrative that might be useful is the narrative of seeking out freedom from suffering, narrative of seeking out wisdom. So, so you have the narrative, I am seeking out uh, wisdom, I am seeking out enlightenment, and that's conventionally valuable. Um, there's going to be, I mean, with the, the 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 concern that it still can be I, 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 right? I am seeking out. So conventional self-narrative is of no value, as far as I understand what you're referring to. Um, but you don't really have to worry about letting go of them. You just have to pay the right attention, gain the right perspective, focus on reality as experiences, and the narratives just kind of drop away. I've been told not to shy away from unpleasant sensations in practice, but often I react immediately and then cannot find the sensation again after I resume noting. Any advice? Well, there's a, there's a difference between shying away and find, trying to find them. So if you can't find it, you shouldn't be trying to find anything. You should be noting the reactions. Um, so yeah, it just takes skill to be able to do that. But with practice, you should be able to note the reactions, the disliking of the, the aversion, the fear could be worry, any of those things. Usually just aversion, disliking. So you just note the disliking as well. It can be that you're forgetting to note that. But also note the unpleasant sensations. Pain, pain, sadness, whatever it might be. But if it's not there, you don't have to go looking for it. When indulging in bad habits that are highly stimulating, like pornography, my mind seems to completely change for a while, and I can't seem to be mindful anymore. Any advice or practices for it? Just takes practice. This is how habits work. If you're 
mind is on the wrong train, the wrong chain reaction that is devoid of mindfulness. There's, there's nothing you can do during that time. When you realize that, there is the opportunity, and you'd be surprised how effective it can be to note when you do note wanting. It, if it's weak, it's not likely going to be able to free you from the bad train. But uh, again, with things like pornography, it's it's an ordinary part of of worldly life. So if you're doing meditation every day, your spirituality will progress and over time you'll be inclined towards doing things like meditation courses that will send you in the right direction and help you gain a, a broader perspective, give you the strength of mind to pull away from things that you realize are not actually leading to any long-term satisfaction. They tend to lead towards bad habits of irritability, withdrawal, um, general meanness when you want things and you don't get them. I mean, it's the kind of thing that leads to fighting. Romantic engagements quite often lead to fighting and bickering and uh, hurting each other because of the the uh, coarseness of mind and the addiction to stimulation that triggers aversion when you feel when your 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 pleasure is threatened. That's why there's so much divorce and marital fighting, even marital infidelity, that sort of thing. That's why there's domestic abuse. I'm not excusing it. It's just why people become evil. So you start to see, you get a better perspective through mindfulness. But again, it usually takes, this is on the level that it takes some fairly intensive practice. It's not something you can just think is going to go away. It's much more deep-seated than that. Again, what you should be concerned most about is uh, the five precepts, killing, stealing, cheating is the one related here. Are you hurting other people with your sexuality, like breaking up relationships or going behind manipulating or going behind someone's back, that sort of thing? What are the basic steps to teach children meditation in the world of social media? Well, I made some videos quite a while back, and they, they're probably outdated by now, but you might go and watch them at least, even if you don't show them to children, how to meditate for kids. You can get some ideas from them. It, I, I tried to make it broader than just mindfulness, but mostly to give kids the idea of the mantra because you'll notice that some of the mantras in those videos are not related to mindfulness, but they kind of go in progression. So at least watch them to get some ideas of how I would think to talk. I think they're still valuable. Uh, I guess I just direct you to those videos. If I label something without it triggering new thoughts, does that mean I am doing labeling correctly? I mean, it's a good sign. Just don't rely on it. Your mind is tricky and it's uh, unpredictable. And generally, that's what—that's a good thing. That's a sign that you are um, you're gaining something from the practice. 
You'll notice that your mind has moments of clarity, purity. Um, just just, just um, take them as they come. Don't expect that or be discouraged when that changes and your mind goes back to being triggered. Yeah, just roll with it and and yeah. Consider that you're seeing, you're getting a glimpse of some of the benefit of mindfulness. Certainly is a good sign. So what I mean to say is you can be doing it correctly and that still doesn't happen just because there's some your, your mind can be really caught up in bad bad intent inclinations such that it just overrides it, it it floods and overrides the mindfulness. But from time to time, especially if you practice more intensively, you'll see, yes, I can note things without being triggered the way I used to. It really does gradually work in that way. When I wake up, my mind is very unified and centered and settled, but after some time I lose that state. What is a good way to unify the mind again? We're not really aiming for that. The, this idea of mind very unified and centered and settled is just calm, really. So if you feel that, you have to note it and be careful not to get attached to it. You might be liking that state. Uh, I mean, there may be some good qualities, but most likely not. Most likely it's just you feel refreshed because you've been sleeping. It's not really all that wholesome. Um, it's just a, a good feeling. And so you have to be careful to note liking. So that you're asking the question, how do, how do I unify the mind again, is it's a sign of a sort of a subtle attachment to it. See, the thing about mindfulness is you have to be flexible. You have to be able to roll with the punches. You have to be able to keep up with life. It's like a boxing match, sort of, or a dance. You have to be able to dance with it. And your mind might be unified at times, but at times you might be, your mind might be scattered. If you read the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha was pretty clear. When your mind is scattered, you know that it's scattered. When your mind is unified, you know that it's unified. That's very important. It's something that maybe is missed sometimes when people practice. I think there's something wrong when the mind is scattered. It's a, You could say it's a bad sign, but it's more just a sign of the nature of your mind. And as soon as you take it as bad and prefer the unified state, then you've, you've set yourself up for problems. You've created a partiality. You've created a opportunity for aversion, for frustration, for greed, for for ego trying to control, trying to make it unified. Any question like this: What is a good way to do X, or how do I do X? Is probably most likely a bad question. I mean, I don't blame you for asking it, but it's important to point out that. That's not the way of mindfulness. We're not trying to do something. We're try trying to cultivate a specific state of mind. We're trying to be present with whatever state of body and mind exists. And you have to be flexible for that. That's, that's the power of mindfulness, is that it doesn't require any specific contrived state. It's flexible. It's independent. Very important keyword. Can we bring the awareness of meditation with us throughout the day after we have finished our session of meditation in the morning? 
This kind of smacks of the same problem as the last question, though. Not necessarily, but let's be clear. Mindfulness isn't a continuous state. It's a momentary state. Think of it as being more, how do I uh, cultivate mindfulness throughout the day? And you do it at the momentary level. In this moment, right now, you can be mindful. In this moment, you can cultivate the, all the good qualities that come from mindfulness. Just do it in this moment. And then in this moment, and how many moments you're able to do it is the important thing, not how long or how sustained it is. There's no sustaining mindfulness. Mindfulness is momentary. So how you bring it through the day is you apply the same principles as you did during the session of meditation. Four foundations of mindfulness don't go anywhere. They're always going to be your refuge. They're always going to be your um, pasture. The Buddha called them gochara. Pasture meaning the place where you are safe, the place where you are supposed to be. If you go outside of your practice, it's outside of the four foundations of mindfulness, it's called agochara. It's outside of your pasture. It's where danger lies, where predators lie, where Mara can catch you. When someone speaks to me with rudeness, it makes me immediately react to it with a rude reply back. How do I get rid of this, as I am tired of not being able to stay composed when people are rude? Well, getting tired of it is a, generally a good thing, but only because it shows you that you can't get rid of it. So you have to change that attitude of trying to get rid of things, because that's aversion. And aversion is the kind of thing that makes you react with rudeness. So you have to be humbled, and that's what's sort of happening is you're humbled. I am not able, I am not powerful the way I thought I was. I thought I could get rid of this rudeness. I thought I could stop myself. That sort of arrogance is what leads you to react with rudeness, right? You're arrogant, and so you react back. When you're humbled and you realize that you're not in control, that you are powerless in this situation, then then you stop being so attached to self. And when people speak with rudeness, you're kind of like, who are they talking to? It's not me, because there's no me. I mean, I'm not in charge here. They're just shouting at a brick wall, basically. They're shouting at this flesh and blood and pus. I mean, why are they yelling at this putrid body? That's all that's happening, because you're humbled. You get humbled because of non-self. You realize, ah, oh, this isn't... I'm not in control here. I can't stop myself from being rude. Even this mind that is rude back at them, it's not me. So what are they doing shouting and being rude to this mind? It's just, how, what do they expect? That they're going to they're gonna beat it into submission? That's not how the mind works. So you lose the attachment to your own mind as well. And you think, oh, let them yell at it. This thing is useless, this body and mind that they're yelling at. And so you're less inclined to be rude. That's how it works. You don't get rid of rudeness. You just see that you're powerless. Oh gosh, this here comes this rudeness again. Here I am getting angry again. What a horrible thing this is. And you just lose interest. You get tired of it. Tired shouldn't make you try to get rid of it. Tired should make you be less um, dependent on it to be a certain way care less. Like, okay, yeah, look at this getting rude again. Ugh, how horrible. How revolting. And then you just let go. So just be patient, really. If you're mindful of the fact that you were rude and the, the, 
the guilt that you feel if you're mindful of that. It really puts a, puts you in a good place to be mindful of other things, like when they're rude to you, you note the hearing. Hearing when you're angry back, you note angry. When you're afraid or worried or feel arrogant or conceited, I don't deserve to be talked like that. Talk to you. You're able to see those things better because you just have a better perspective. Don't try to get rid of anything. Just be patient with it. Try to see it. Try and see it clearly. I want to continue in the five precepts and work without distractions to improve my family's bad financial situation. Are there unseen beneficial devas or psychic phenomena that help people do this? Um, I mean, it's up to them. There Are there? There probably are, but there are probably just as likely ones that want to see you fail or are, are, are playing with you or manipulating you for their own fun. Um, so there is a sense that there are probably some devas who appreciate you keeping the five precepts and may help you, but you really can't rely on that. It's more about your karma. It's more about you, whether you deserve it. And the more you're attached to that, the more stress and suffering you're going to have. If you want to improve your family's bad financial situation, the only thing you can really do is, is work at it. It's, it's maybe trite to say that because sometimes it's not nearly as simple, but if you're patient, if you're moral and ethical, if you're keeping the five precepts, there is great power to that. Even now in the world, that uh, can have some pretty miraculous consequences. Keep the five precepts, practice mindfulness. Try and remember that in the end, it's only the six senses. Even if you're destitute, if you're going hungry, if you're dying of hunger, if you're dying of cold, if you're dying of, of anything, sickness, malnutrition, um, it's still just the six senses. That's the kind of thing that can have great power and can be very much noticed by not only devas, but humans as well. It's the kind of thing that leads to some really serious appreciation, not just from devas. Humans as well resonate. Things are, are not usually as dire as we think, even when most people would agree they're pretty dire. You'll often be surprised by the strange things that happen in a good way when you're mindful, when you really face loss and, and destitution, when you just embrace it and accept it, and not accept it per se, but be mindful in the face of it and face it, face hunger, face poverty, face uh, emotional turmoil from yourself and the people around you. When you face them, you, you can find great power and strength and, again, appreciation from others. I feel thoughts are something that come and go automatically without any effort. But when I start to notice the thoughts, I feel like I'm clinging to it and not letting go. Any advice? Well, just note the clinging. 
There's not really anything that should give you trouble in practice. Just note it. Um, it's going to be always a little bit tricky. It's not going to be simply noting one thing. You have to note the next thing as well. And try and go back to the stomach when you can. But when you feel like you're clinging, just note clinging, clinging, whatever it might be like, wanting, liking, disliking, that sort of thing. And then just go back to the stomach, go back to whatever you're doing at the time. Okay, so we've hit the hour. We'll go another five minutes or until we run out of good questions. Dante, we've already crossed into the second tier. Are you willing oh. to answer some? Um, yeah, let's go till five minutes and then we'll stop because okay. we started five minutes late. Thank you. Is nirvana an experience in meditation? Yes. You, you, it, it, with some qualification qualifier, the only qualifier is that what we normally label as an experience um, is not what nirvana is. So it is technically an experience. You could use that word. That's accurate. It's just that when we think of experience, yeah, it's not like that. It's not like what we'd normally think of as an experience per se. It's not something that arises. So when we talk about experience, we're usually talking about something arising. Nirvana isn't an arising, but it is technically an experience in meditation. Is it dangerous to listen to other religious teaching, such as Christianity? It seems like Christianity is teaching the same thing, but just uses a lot of metaphors for the battles we're facing. It's not dangerous per se, but it, it's not accurate. Christianity doesn't teach the same thing as Buddhism. It doesn't teach any of the important things in Buddhism. Um, there's no Eightfold Noble Path. You could say there's some parts of it, but there's no Four Foundations of Mindfulness. There's no Nirvana. There's belief in God um, as moving mountains, like whatever you want if you pray to God. There's uh, going to heaven, and going to heaven is only through God. Now you can talk about that as a metaphor or so on. But um, some of the things Christ taught sound very Buddhist, but they're on a more sort of trivial level. There's nothing really deep about Christianity. There's only about 5,000 words of Christ in the whole of the Bible, something like 5,000 words uh, in the whole Bible. And uh, there's not much there, really. I mean, there's some powerful words, but it's not much. Christianity is such a such a childlike religion. I mean, th that may be that may seem mean and un, un, unkind, but if you compare it to like Hinduism, Hinduism is just so has so much more depth to it. If you want to compare Buddhism, compare it to Hinduism, because that's a theistic religion that we can talk about having some depth. Christianity's yes, there's some very nice teachings in it, but not all, there's not much. It's, I mean, look at the Bible; it's small. It's it's not much there. But yeah, I mean, as far as religions go, it's there's some good things like being kind to others, being humble, kind of letting go of the world, that sort of thing. Those are all good, but those aren't really the core teachings of Christianity. It's much more about God and heaven and belief in the Father, belief in Christ. 
How do I act when someone rants about something and seeks my understanding? If I sympathize, it's like acknowledging their anger. It feels dishonest to do so because I know anger in any case is harmful. I'm, I think I've, I think I've hit my limit here. I don't know how to, I I can't even understand this question. How do you act? Someone rants. Um, We don't want to sympathize, right? Okay, so someone is. Mm -hmm. Well, be mindful and again, don't underestimate the power of smiling. Again, I, I haven't mentioned it this time, but I've talked about this before that just smiling and not reacting is very powerful and can be quite valuable when dealing with things you don't want to engage in. Instead of engaging with people, just smile and be kind and be sympathetic. Sympathetic, maybe that's not the right word. Um, yeah, kind of sympathetic. Um, I guess I want to say empathetic. Is that the right word? Empathize not even what i mean to say is appreciate their pain like someone is ranting about something you can appreciate that you can appreciate their pain without thinking that they are right in um, being angry so appreciate their pain and appreciate how it makes them angry and think of it as wishing for them to be free from anger and free from pain because in fact the pain comes from the anger as well anger makes makes you brings you pain just think you don't have to tell them that you don't have to say oh i hope you are free from your anger so you don't aren't don't have so much pain sometimes that works but rarely mostly it will not work so mostly you just think of it that way in your mind and you smile and wish them well Sometimes you can acknowledge bad things. Like if someone's ranting about something that truly is evil, you can appreciate, yeah, that's very evil. Just appreciate it. That will help validate their view if it's right. Of course, if if someone says, oh, these such and such people, this ethnic group or that, you know, if they're being racist or that sort of thing, then... uh, it gets harder, but in that case, you probably don't want to spend much time with that person anyway. Thank you, Bante, for taking the extra time to answer those questions. Okay. More than Thank five you, all good passed. questions. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Jim's here. Mm-hmm. Edit is here. Is Edit here? She oh, didn't notice this here. time, but I've seen her. Okay, thank you for your help. Sadhu, everyone. Wish everyone peace, happiness, freedom from suffering, and progress in your practice. May you all find Nibbana and be free yourself from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.